Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to Ebooks in Critical Theory. On this episode, I'll be talking to John Martin Chamberlain about his new book, Medical Regulation, Fitness to Practice and Revalidation, a Critical Introduction, which is published by Policy Press. Welcome to Ebooks in Critical Theory. I'm your host, Dr. Dave O'Brien. On this episode, I'm talking to Dr. John Martin Chamberlain, who is an Associate Professor of Medical Criminology at the University of Southampton. We're going to be talking about his latest book, which is Medical Regulation, Fitness to Practice and Revalidation, a critical introduction. It was published by Policy Press in the UK and the University of Chicago Press in the US in 2015. So welcome to the pod. Thanks, David. Nice to be here. Um, This is an absolutely fascinating book. And as the introduction sets out, speaks really immediately um, to some very crucial issues that are going on in medicine in the UK, but has implications, I think, for a for how medicine is, is kind of thought about as a profession and is regulated um, in, in, in a much more global context. Yeah. I wonder if you could, you could kind of say what the background to the book is and, and where your, your interest in medical regulation and, and the sort of specific elements um, of professional practice and how doctors are um, surveilled, regulated and audited has come from. Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, I think really we have to start off from my own personal interest. This is a broader level as a sociologist and criminologist uh, who's interested in medical regulation. It's one of the first things that I understood when I came to this literature. It's like that we, what we have is two keys. One is that over the last 20, 30 years, you've got a massive transformation in how doctors are regulated within not just the UK, but we've got similar trends emerging across Europe, in other countries, France, Holland, for example, Russia, um, across the the water in the US. There's been changes in in how the different uh, states organise the recertification of doctors. And also in the US, uh, sorry, in Australia and New Zealand as well, there's changes occurring there. And these are all seem to be centred around series of high-profile cases where it's been found out that doctors really have hidden mistakes, hidden errors. Um, so in the UK, of course, from the 90s onwards, you had the older hair cases, the Bristol cases, where there's the organ retention scandals, malpractice, and really bringing to the foreground that this profession that we really trust and that has a high level of, of trust within society, all the opinion polls keep reinforcing this, uh, has nevertheless got a problem with how it monitors itself. And that has been because historically, really from the mid-19th century onwards, so you talk about 100, 150 years, uh, they've regulated themselves and self-regulation has been that model. And that's the first part of it. For me, this notion of a profession being so trusted that it regulates itself. 
Um, and the second part of that is at a broader level. And it's like what I say to my um, students, you know, your healthcare system, your criminal justice system, the legal system, all of society's institutions, they are interconnected. And what we seem to have is a situation where at the same time that these challenges to medicine have occurred, not just in the UK, but globally, shifts in how we think about what is good governance, what we mean by uh, the way that society should be regulated, what we expect of those, not just professionals and experts that are involved in, you know, the smooth functioning of our health and welfare services, but also at a political level, at a social political level, an economic level. And I was interested really in looking and tracing that because if you look in the literature on medical regulation, they're just kind of a lot of people focus solely on these transformations as if they're just a response to these high-profile mistakes. Whereas my take on it has been, yes, that's part of the story, but the whole story is the broader social transformations that we're underway and that we've got different expectations about how people in positions of power and control should be made accountable for what they do. And, and that's really um, the kind of the back end of the book, connecting up um, the broader theoretical discussions about things like risk uh, yeah. with the individual practices that the book seeks mm-hmm. to explore. And I wonder if we could move towards that eventually by, by going um, through that more contextual set of ideas you outlined, particularly um, the two key ideas that situate the book the kind of service orientation uh, mm. that the doctors are supposed to have and the kind of overwhelming idea that doctors can just be sort of left alone um, to be practitioners after they, they qualify. Um, mm. why, why were these kind of so important to um, setting up a, a situation where medical regulation was essentially kind of left alone or, mm. uh, or almost kind of ignored by uh, society and governments and politics until the 1980s? Yeah, well, really, you have to go back in the UK, uh, and you've got similar medical acts across Europe and also in the US and um, Australia, is really to the 1858 Medical Act. And what you have there in the UK is a state of affairs where the state essentially handed over to the profession control of the education, training, and general discipline of of the practice of medicine to the medical profession. So you have the Royal Colleges, the British Medical Association, coming together and this institution, this regular institution, the General Medical Council, being primarily made up just of doctors. And that was basically a result of two things. One, this development that you see from the 18th, 19th century onwards of, you know, medicine increasingly getting this... Uh, biomedical view of human body, of disease, and this being very successful in the role of public health, in treating illness and disease, extending longevity. And that easy, being so esoteric that it takes a prolonged period of training to actually become, you know, uh, competent in it. And, all, and so you can, uh, increasingly closes off that knowledge from the general public. And then at the same time, medicine is, I think, what we have here nowadays, we talk about professionals or as a kind of generic thing, like a salesperson can say, oh, I'm 
acting professionally, I'm a professional, but actually, no, what you have with medicine, which is the definitive profession in many ways for criminologists and sociologists, is because what they're trying to do and what the promise of medicine is, is they put their own economic interest and empirical gain, everything, to second to the patient's interest. So they have this, for example, through the Hippocratic Oath, do no harm. They always have to put at an ethical level, their patients' interests first. So there's that professionalism. So these two things combined to create this closure around education, training, and regulation at a social political level because we have to trust them because we don't quite understand what they're doing. And that means that doctors are self-regulating themselves. And what we have as a concurrency to that is medical knowledge in its infancy. So up to, you know, 1910, 1920s, 30s, 40s, and 50s, medicine, medical technology, medical knowledge is developing a pace, becoming increasingly more dangerous in many ways. But nevertheless, doctors are still controlling the education and training in a very closed-off way. But you increasingly get a recognition that doctors need to keep themselves up to date. We presume they do that because that's part of their ethical commitment to patients, to the, the, the care of their patients. So they're not meant to just stop learning once they finish medical school. They've got to keep learning throughout their careers. But in the UK, for example, there was no formal continuing professional development system in place. There was nothing formally accountable. Doctors didn't have to go. And it was only really in the 1980s and early 90s that this, the medical colleges started putting in place continuing professional development training programs in a very more formalized way. And still then, doctors did not need to, in the UK, prove that they were keeping up to date. So you have these scandals coming through that are showing that we maybe can't quite trust the medical profession to keep its shop in order and then a rapid expansion of medical knowledge expertise and showing that doctors, we need a new system about how doctors keep themselves up to date and prove in a very accountable and transparent way that they are doing so. The, the other thing that, that grows out of this or um, perhaps grows alongside this um, and is the way you finish the first chapter of the book is the idea of risk-based regulation mm. and the rise of audit culture um, mm. both in, in medicine but also kind of right across mm. um, society. And, and you, you draw on things like Peter Miller's work to talk about how the profession has, has kind of adapted and in some ways resisted mm. uh, and has worked around this. So I wonder if you could explain these kind of broad categories of risk-based regulation and types of audit and then give us the, uh, the specific example of, uh, of doctors. <laughs> Yes, I mean, to, to my mind, when I've been looking at this, you've got this rise, really. I would say it's like the 1978 Medical Act in the UK. Often, you know, like this is um, called the Morrison Act. But what happened here was is a recognition, and you get this growing through the 1980s, that actually you need to bring in new public management principles into the NHS and how it's organised. But also there's a recognition bound up with this that medicine, you can codify it. 
You can't regulate the expertise. A drug therapy, a treatment, a surgical procedure is in many ways very standardized. And it's through that standardization of medicine that you can regulate doctors, that you can actually say, wait in a second, you know, we can performance manage you in a very much more micro way style. And we can prove that your operational success isn't as uh, much as what we would like it to be. So you have this increasing manageralistic style coming through the NHS and in this complete uh, and focus upon using medicine itself and the outcomes of medicine, the you know, this best evidence medicine approach, which is now in the UK epitomised by the establishment of the, of NICE, National Institute for Clinical Excellence, which is to bring in protocols and best evidence procedures so doctors know what to do in particular clinical situations. And that's to minimise error, minimise risk. And like I say, that focus upon reducing medical risk is due to the rapid expansion of medical technology, medical expertise and knowledge, and it becoming more dangerous, it being much more dangerous in its application than it ever has been historically. And the increase for harm has led to a reaction uh, I would say, in terms of focusing more upon risk and its management in healthcare. Now, that is bound up more, as you've mentioned, with the approaches of a more risk-based approach and conceptualization of modernity, late modernity, however you want to do that. And then with medicine, what you have is you have a situation developing very particularly during the 90s, where the doctors are looking at how they're keeping up to date, they're looking at their outcomes, their surgical outcomes, their clinical outcomes, how they're treating patients, and developing a profile of risk, not just of the application of medicine, but of what the problematic doctor. So you're able to, just as in, say, Criminology, uh, crime science, you can do a risk profile on, a, on somebody's risk of reoffending. What you have emerging from the 90s onwards is profiles of doctors and the risk of them making a mistake, making an error. And that can put more and more being embedded within the managerial system of the NHS. And you have that not just in the UK, but it's in the US, it's in Australia, in the developing world, across Europe as well. It's, it's very much a shared experience for many practitioners, I would say. So the book then moves on to think through uh, other types of, of regulation. You've sort of um, hinted or, or gestured towards these already before uh, the process of revalidation, uh, and I think that maybe the way to illustrate that is through the particular case of Harold Shipman, the impact that had on the profession, um, and then the kind of challenge of revalidation. Yeah, very much so. I mean, the, the style of governance that we have in medicine, like I said, was very insular, and you could really trace it 150 years from the 1858 Medical Act to the 2008 Health and Social Care Act, and say during the uh, 150 years, what you have is a gentleman's club approach. Mm. It's a very closed shop, and it's doctors regulating doctors. 
And you can see from, say, the 70s, 80s onwards, that gentleman's club where it's members and elite members of medical schools, the Royal Colleges, etc., sitting on the GMC board, regulating the med- uh, medical profession, ensuring the standards, ensuring the training. You can see that it starts to get cracks in it, that you start to get more what they would prefer as lay members, members of the public coming in. But it's only really with the Shipman case that you get the GMC transformed. It's only with, you know, when he is caught, when he goes to trial, when it's realised he came up in front of the GMC uh, beforehand for uh, prescription abuse, that the GMC just basically slapped his fingers, that they knew about his practices, and also that his colleagues didn't whistleblow upon him. They could see that there's a change in medical culture needed. So with the 2008 Health and Social Care Act, you get these two things that occur. One is... Uh, Dave Smith uh, recommendations is that the GMC be cracked open, that it no longer be a medical members only club, that you actually have to have a significant, indeed a majority of general public uh, members sitting on it, so with doctors working in partnership to regulate the profession. And the other thing, like what you mentioned, is the introduction of medical revalidation to regularly recertify the fitness to practice of doctors, not just clinically, but in terms of their own health, in terms of of their attitudes, their ethics, their property, to ensure that we've got a more rigorous system so that we can track these people and track people who... Because the key thing is, is... What the research shows is that it's a relatively small number of doctors who are making repeat behavioural mistakes, errors of of judgment, of ethics that are responsible for the majority of medical negligence and litigation, not just in the UK, but in other countries as well. So the introduction of revalidation, the changes to the GMC and the shift away from that gentleman medical club to this more open approach, this more risk-based approach, is bound up with that change and that more focus upon, you know, checking in a transparent and accountable way that doctors are doing their job correctly. Now, in that story, you bring in uh, the work of Michel Foucault, um, yeah. who, who obviously wrote a whole range of things around medicine, but also um, in various other works kind of thought through ideas about surveillance and and you know the governance and management of, of particular kinds of cells. So, so how is his work useful and relevant um, for understanding that transformation in medicine? Well, the, the, this is the thing as well. Like what I said back at the beginning, this conception of medicine, and like that I view it very much as being part of a broader system. We're talking about a broader, at a broader level, the notion of what we constitute good governance has been transformed. So yes, we've got these transformations occurring in the regulation of doctors, but they're not just symptomatic of the problems within medicine. They're actually part of these broader transformations in part. And Foucault's very important there. Because the dominant way of viewing medicine and its regulation in the UK, and also actually the Anglo-American context, was this neo-Viberian approach which emphasises social closure. So this gentleman's club ideal, 
is the social closure model that the profession has got its esoteric expertise, it's got its ethical commitments, and it uses that expertise and the ethical commitments to create a closure around the practice of medicine, exclude outsiders, and control the training and practice and discipline of members. And that model starts to break down for many criminologists and sociologists from the 90s onwards. Even though you can still see it occurring, uh, you can still see it there and say, actually, in many ways, because of the nature of medical expertise, you know, doctors will always need to regulate themselves. You will always need the opinion of their peers to ensure their fitness to practice. Nevertheless, we have to crack this open. We have to have a different a performance management approach. And this is where Foucault comes in with these notions of the disciplining of the body, disciplining a distance, that the regulatory regimes within society, uh, with neoliberal society, that are changing slowly over time to more approach based upon self-surveillance. And you get this very much so like what I've looked at in revalidation. It's about a doctor regulating their own behaviour inscribing uh, and keeping a portfolio of evidence of that behaviour for others to look at. So it's a very Fouconian notion of getting people to regulate themselves instead of having a command and control model of governance. You've got a dispersal of the discipline through society. And I think that that approach really encapsulates how risk-based regulation works particularly now with this introduction in the UK of the duty of candour, this idea that a practitioner needs to be candid with patients, not just about the impact of a treatment upon them, but their own ability to actually perform a surgical procedure or or their own ability to treat a patient uh, in a clinical situation. So these things are emphasising really the self-regulation of the doctor, the doctor regulating themselves in a more open and transparent way, whilst at the same time, like as Foucault notes, being placed under more intense surveillance by a third party on the outside. And you have that running through medicine a, a lot in terms of medical colleges and education now being more accountable to third party uh, overarching um, uh, government systems. For example, we have the uh, you know the Professional Standards Authority, which oversees medical regulation now. So every time there's a tribunal outcome where there's a problem with a doctor, the Professional Standards Association they have to review that case and uh, review the outcome and confirm that. So that increasingly is placing uh, surveillance and control at the centre of this risk-based approach. So Foucault is very important to try and understanding that, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and we might come back to that, actually, at, at the end of the, uh, mm. of, of the book as well. So the, the book turns on this um, particular regulatory intervention, the, uh, the Fitness to Practice Panel, or the, the FPP. Um, how does that function? Um, what, what are its sort of its limits? Um, and what has been the kind of, the payoff, because one of the things you juxtapose in the in the third chapter is, you know, that kind of Foucauldian narrative of both increased surveillance and sort of self-surveillance, self-regulation, with actually questions about the numbers of doctors that are being, you know, declared unfit or, or struck off uh, from practice. 
Yeah, absolutely. Because the the thing about the medical practitioner tribunal um, service, as it is now called, is you've got to think about how what is the process by which you can stop a doctor practicing medicine in the UK. You can't unless the GMC remove their license. So the only way that you can do that is question the fitness to practice of a doctor through formal channels, through making a complaint, and then the GMC investigating that complaint, seeing if there is a need to go any further, that there's a real problem here, and then taking the doctor uh, to a tribunal process and either placing some kind of sanction on them so they can't you know, perform medicine for a period of while until they've undergone some training or completely removing them from the medical register. So that kind of process becomes increasingly important under this risk-based approach because it has to become transparent and accountable to the public. So what you actually have in this Increasingly, the GMC has to publish the statistics of what it's doing. So what I did in that chapter was go, okay, let's look at these statistics and what people haven't done so far, what hasn't been done so far, because this is a relatively new thing, is nobody's looked at it longitudinally over time and looked at key policy points and said, okay, so after the 2008 Health and Social Care Act, what has actually changed? If you look at the data just before and then look at the data afterwards, has the changes that are occurring, has this approach and change to regulation, this risk-based approach, actually meant that we have more doctors, for example, being struck off the medical register or subject to discipline? in some ways. So that's what that chapter is about. And of course, as you know from reading the book, the, the answer is the more doctors are being subject to investigation, but the actual number of doctors being removed from the medical register is actually staying very static throughout the historical reporting period. So this kind of thing is in, links into this broader, more very Foucaultian argument that actually it's not so much about ensuring that we're punishing more people, but actually that we've got a more transparent and accountable process that has got legitimacy, that it's a legitimate governance process in place now. So it doesn't matter that we're not striking off more people. What matters is that the process itself is more than transparent and people can't argue with it. They can't say that doctors are protecting doctors. So I, I, that's what that chapter is very much about. Which which leads to, I think, the question that Chapter 4 tries to um, engage with an answer, which is, well, how do we account for this? Because obviously, um, you know, the, there are various kind of narratives through which we might situate this. You know, we might talk in terms of the continuation of gentlemen's club ethos or, you know, some sort of uh, malice on, on behalf of um, the medical profession or, you know, through as contemporary kind of, uh, economics language would have it, you know, the sort of um, the new public management or the public choice theories of um, these professions, you know, just kind of trying to, uh, you know, seek rent for their market control or whatever. But but you draw on a particular uh, theoretical uh, framework, which is this um, idea about the risk society. Um, and, you know, you ask this really interesting question that, you know, under the risk society has the process uh, of regulation become uh, the punishment. So I wonder if you could say what you mean by risk society and then talk about how that broader uh, kind of backdrop 
enables and constrains the medical profession. Mm. Yeah, very much so. I mean, obviously you have that, you know, Gittin's work on the risk society stuff and Beck and people like that. And, and one my starting point was very much with that and moving that forward and looking at it from a very Fuconian point of view in many ways and thinking about this dispersal of discipline throughout the society, thinking about really if risk is now, the concept of risk is now centre stage. Because in, as, as you well know, in sociology, criminology, what you have is this situation where we've always said there's these key categories that exist that um, impinge upon the topics that we are concerned with, that impinge upon notions of social mobility, social justice, social change and how society works, class, race, ethnicity and gender. And the argument that people like Giddens and Beck, people like that, and Jens is in, and Mythen and people like that say is that actually what's happened is risk has now become a centre stage category. And if you think about it, it's really interesting to think of medicine in that context because not only when we have a risk society do we rely upon experts like doctors to help us manage risk, at the same time we become more questioning of the, the people who are providing us with the answers about what we need to do. So the, I can see very much the regulation of doctors being bound up with that. This need to ensure they're transparent, the need to ensure they're accountable, but more importantly, the need to ensure like, that we are reassured about the way they are regulated, that it is legitimate, that they are changed, that the way that they used to be in terms of the gentleman club is very different. And also bound up with that, I, I, you know, you've got this increasing focus upon high incidence of that of profiles in the media, like the shipments or the mid-status trust that we had recently and things like that in the UK. So you have the playing out in the media of the tensions that exist within the risk society about between our need to one hand rely upon doctors, but also at the other hand to be suspicious of medical privilege and power. And so you have these media events and you are, tribunal processes are bound up often with these media events. We now increasingly report them. And so what I was looking at through this lens was thinking, okay, what concept might be useful for looking in more detail at this idea of the, the increasing mediation and, 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 uh, and surveillance of, of doctors and, and the playing out of this little game in our public eye. And so this notion, like Simon Feeney's notion of, you know, the punishment now becomes the, pro the process now becomes the punishment, because he was looking at the, the law courts and he was looking at like, the process of tribunals, courts, and how the stigma attached to that in many ways is part of the punishment itself. So I wanted to use that concept to look at this and to talk about what the impact is for practitioners themselves and the medical profession at large when they have to live in a media-saturated society. So the question is, okay, where are we next going? Where does risk-based regulation end? And I think one way of, of answering that is say, well, you're going to increasingly, a uh, process increasingly negotiated in the media, and that, as a result, means that, okay, more doctors may not be being struck off, but they're more in the public eye. They're more shamed and na named and shamed for one of the better. And where, um, 
where does this leave uh, medicine then? You know, w- will it be subject, do you think, to more sort of uh, almost, I guess, kind of public um, pressure as a mode of regulation? Or, or do you see um, internal reforms and, and responses to the risk society coming uh, from the profession itself? I, the, 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 this, this is really the next stage of what my research is about because one of the things that I'm very aware of from, from writing this book and from my analysis and my work is that if you actually look at the model, it's got a very limited view of the public profile in terms of who the complainants are, who who are the people at risk from doctors. And when it's... it's one of the, the, the key medical sociologists who was first looked at the GMC, Meg Stacey, she said there was a very much a great and a good uh, conception of the public membership of the GMC. And it was like, okay, we'll let people in to work with us and to be part of this regulatory system, but they've got to be white males. Yeah. And if you look at what's happened in the risk-based regime, that's been cracked open you now have a more gender-balanced approach. So, for example, on the medical practitioner tribunal reviews, you generally, if you look at the people involved, you can see there's an even split between the lay, non-medical and medical. You can see that it's representative in terms of gender, there's an equal number of men and women. You can even see in terms of race and ethnicity representation that's similar to British society as a whole in terms of the percentage of people who come from a non-white background. But nevertheless, the whole tribunal process is still very much a middle class particular endeavour. So the conception of what a member of the public is, is very limited. So the people who tend to be involved in sitting on these panels as independents tend to be retired lawyers, retired judges, retired politicians, people who are university educated, people from well-to-do backgrounds, there's even professional uh, tribunal members who don't just sit on the GMC but sit on the, the house, uh, the nursing council, the dentistry council as well. So the, I think it's, the risk-based approach is going to get increasingly cracked open and you're going to have to expand your perception, uh, the membership and the, the role of non-traditional groups within and the social groups, the socially marginalised, a broader victim profile for once a better way of putting it needs to be inculcated within the regular regime and I think that will occur over the next decade as revalidation and recertification processes and these transformations to the GMC unfold so I think we're on the cusp of broader changes and this is what's really exciting about this time because you don't know quite what's going to happen but I think actually addressing the fact that you've got a very limited conception of what the public is within the regulatory regime and the way political elites are trying to inculcate a, a, a non-medical view within the regulatory regime is going to be a large part of that story. And is that going to be the subject of, uh, of a, a forthcoming book or a bigger project? Or Yeah, yes, this is a project I'm currently working on and I'm currently working with tribunal members and also members of the public have been through the tribunal process looking at uh, the experiences of the tribunal process. So that's a project that's going on over the next year and a half. 
Um, and so that's very interesting because we're looking at very much of a restorative justice kind of approach and we're trying to get practitioners who've been referred to a tribunal to sit down with people who've been victims of medical error and, and discuss the tribunal processes and the problems therein with it. And that's a project that's running, uh, like I say, for the next year and a half. And then also at the moment I'm working with colleagues in the US, Canada, Australia, India, South America and across Europe on a, on a follow-up route to this one that's going to look at this notion of the public interest and look at, at how, whether or not we're actually moving towards a regulatory system that does ensure the public interest or the putting more barriers into place. Thanks for listening to New Books in Critical Theory. I've been your host, Dr Dave O'Brien. On this episode, I was talking to John Martin Chamberlain from the University of Southampton about his new book published by Policy Press called Medical Regulation, Fitness to Practice and Revalidation, a Critical Introduction.